Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there, how's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where a bunch of us content creators come together and talk about what we've been playing recently. And on this episode are... Dice and Dragons, The Cardboard Kid, Mozart Games, Meeple and the Moose, The Meeple Dungeon, The Tabletop Bellhop, The Bridge City Board Gamers Community, and Cardboard Conjecture. And as always, please take the time to check out the show notes to see the links to the What You've Been Playing Wednesday cast. And, uh, yeah, enjoy! What up, gamers? I'm Jason from Dyson Dragons, and today I'm flying solo. Julie and I have been incredibly busy as of late with quite a few things, so she had to fly out the door, and I am now recording this segment for What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. And just remind everyone where you can find us. You can find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook at Dyson Dragons, and on Twitter at Dyson Dragon. Now, today we're going to be talking about Euthia Torment of Resurrection. It is designed by Marketa Blahova and Tadea Spusta, and the publisher is Die uh, Games. Now, this is currently back on GameFound, not Kickstarter. The original was on Kickstarter. It's now on GameFound with a full reprint and a couple of expansions. And they are going to be expanding the cooperative element of the game, which, uh, as you know, Julie and I love our co-ops. So we're looking forward to checking that out, hopefully in the near future. That being said, this one to four player game does play solo. Obviously, it's one player. It does play cooperatively, but it's primarily designed as a competitive experience. Now, the competitive aspects come into play in terms of other players controlling the monsters that you will be fighting as you quest across the board in this sandbox-style adventure. So what you're going to be doing in Euthia is you'll start at the church, you're going to have different scenarios and different objectives based on the scenarios that you've picked. You're then going to be moving around the map, you will be fighting monsters, gaining gold, You'll also be mining for resources and finding treasure as you compete to get the most reputation points and be the mightiest hero in the realm of Euthia. Now, this sounds fairly straightforward, but it's a little bit more complicated than you would expect because you will be upgrading your hero. So the paths that you take, the items that you choose to pick up, the mining that you do are really going to have a big effect on as how your hero develops. You also have to be fairly strategic with everything that you do because do you need gear? Do you need abilities? Abilities sometimes can only be used once per combat round. So once they're exhausted, you can't use it again. Is that money better spent equipping you with some armor that's going to increase your health. Do you need those health potions? Are you trying to complete a quest? There's just a lot to take in and a lot that you can do. Now, if you play in Rudebound 3rd uh, Edition, this definitely feels a lot like it, but I would say that the actions are far more streamlined in terms of what you're doing, but the strategy feels a lot deeper because 
You just have a lot of choices. You may want to spend some time just walking around and fighting some of the lower level monsters in order to increase the resources they have available to yourself to fight the level 2 ones because when you get into combat in this game, it doesn't end until you're dead or the monster's dead. Now, one thing that is good about that is if you die, you go back to the church. You will continue your turn and you don't really use... Uh, sorry, lose all that much time. You also won't be losing too much in terms of the way of equipment. Actually, there could be some benefits from dying if you, as you get tired out in the wild. I mean, the game is called Torment of Resurrection. That's a big aspect as to what you're seeing in this game. It definitely has a Diablo-esque video game feel in that respect, which actually really works in its favor because you don't have to worry too, too much about dying and it makes combat just something that's a lot of fun and as i was mentioning earlier the key aspect of the competitive nature is your the other players will be using those monsters against you by playing silver and gold cards to increase their abilities and triggering nasty effects as they try to defeat you which will give them more reputation points at the end of the game as the focus is purely on getting points and being the most powerful Killing other players is to your benefit, but you're not necessarily going to hinder them a ton so much so that they're going to be way behind the eight ball. Something that Julie and I don't really like, and we really enjoyed playing both the competitive and the cooperative version of the game. Now with all the scenarios and the fact that the board is generated randomly the way the tiles come out, you do have a lot of replayability in this game. I will have to say that the cooperative mode, while it's fun, it is a little light. There is an app to help streamline and smooth out the combat, which we really enjoyed. But I would say if you're looking to get this as a cooperative experience, I'd probably pick up the uh, the cooperative expansion. Now, there hasn't been a ton of details coming out on it, but as it works really well, and I really like what they've done here, I take this version to be much like... Uh, Runebound 3rd Edition, where you got a solid game, a great game here actually, in terms of what it's trying to do, but with that expansion for Runebound 3rd Edition, it was Unbreakable Bonds, the one that's coming right now in GameFound, could be the thing that puts it over the top for a lot of players and makes it an essential, especially for people that like sandbox adventure games. So there you have it, I've talked enough about Uthia Torment of Resurrection here. Hopefully next time Julie will be back with me on this segment, but you can definitely check out our review that's going to be coming out the day after this, and like I said, the campaign is live currently. So with that being said, don't forget, keep playing games. Hey everyone, I'm the Cardboard Kid, and after another busy month of school appointments, I'm back on what you've been playing Wednesday. Bullet is a cool game unlike almost any other game I've played. Great powers, great characters, great puzzle system, just a great game. Every turn is optimization and maximization, and that timer adds stress, and there are tons of modes. Yeah, just a great game. Panorama is a pick and pass drafting game that's a lot like another game from the publisher that I revealed a while back, Flourish. Scoring takes about as long as the game itself, but the overall experience is only about 45 minutes. The question is, is there enough gameplay here for a 45 minute game? I'll talk more about that and some other things in my upcoming review. Bus is my first splatter. My parents say it feels like a splatter. Simple but complex gameplay with agonizing decisions, direct and indirect interaction, and all in a quick 60 minute package. The action cube is some sections that are entirely based on your game state, but others based on your opponents'. Also, the ability to manipulate time, the forward and reversing actions mean that turn optimization is critical. 
Cryptid is a deduction game played on a modular board. It's pretty abstract, but the general idea is players starting with one fact and then placing a marker to either ask another question or search a location. Depending on the answer to that question, you may need to place a marker. Basically, players will be seating the board with cubes and discs. After a while, you'll get an idea as to where the cryptid is hiding. Once all players have searched a single space, the last player who initiated the search won. It can be over basically in one round, but that's unlikely. I think it's good, but I prefer the search for Planet X. If you mess up, you don't need to restart because you messed up things for others. Even if you painted yourself into a corner, you can wiggle out of it. Also, the first one efficient isn't necessarily the winner. Finally, because it's less abstract, I think there's more to the overall theme and gameplay. I do like that Cryptid has a ton of replayability thanks to the layout and opening books randomizer. Bugs on Rugs is a drafting and set collection game that is so cute. Despite being approachable for being kindergartners, as long as they can read know their numbers, of course, it's surprisingly thinky. You can't just collect whatever. You need to optimize because some bugs may rely on or counter another one. Obsession is a game in Victorian England about trying to bring your family back to glory. There's drafting and work replacement, and it's a lot heavier than the games I've been playing lately. I mean, I can handle it. I've played a bunch of Lacerda games, as many of you know, but the rules caught me off guard. The thing is, this is a harder game to teach and learn than it is to play. The graphic design and components walk you through everything, and it all makes sense. I even beat my parents, which is always great. Kabuto Sumo is a game where you're pushing your discs to knock off more discs, be careful not to drain your supply, and trying to protect your wrestling insect while trying to knock off another's. I quite like that each insect has special tokens and abilities that require you to pay in order to use. Each ability is unique and thematic. At least it's thematic as a game about wrestling insects could be. Component quality is very beautiful and high quality. You can play in easy mode with very young players, free for all, or even teams. We first played Imhotep with Sean Epperson of Thing 12 Games out of Dice Tower West. Mom fell in love with it and we soon bought it, but then it sat on our shelf for a few years. It's super quick. Even what ended up being a learning game, we were done in about 45 minutes. Your workers are stones. On your turn, you place a stone in a boat, get more stones, play an action card, or send a boat. Seeing as only one boat may go to a location and you can never have more than five stones, rounds are quick. This is a mean game. You can block, you can ruin someone's plans, you can even sail a ship you aren't on to an undesirable location to stick it to someone. Instead of our usual Sunday morning RPG session with Vaughn and Norm over Skype, we tackled a case from Sherlock Holmes consulting detective Jack the Ripper in West End Adventures. If you aren't familiar with this, it's a game that works well solo or in a group. You're given a few pages of introduction, then sign off by Sherlock to check out leads and a few suspects at locations, and ultimately fail compared to the colossal jerk. It's not a quick game, about as long as writing out his full name. Nonetheless, like Chronicles of Crime, it's a one and done kind of experience, but also like Chronicles of Crime, has a handful of cases and a handful of boxes. Like an RPG, you'll be taking notes and discussing with the other players, but you're engaged more frequently than a group RPG where you can sometimes find yourself sitting for a while when your teammates are doing their thing. Afterwards, I played Calico Tabletopia against my friend Anna Maria, formerly of Girls at Game Shelf. It's a 4-5 minute strategy game about two of my favorite things, cats and being cozy. It has a clever drafting system where you use one of your existing tiles, then draft a replacement for one of the three in the center. There are numerous ways to score, including plan Bs, in case things don't work out the way you hoped. That's about all for now. If you want to see photos and updates on what I'm playing, follow me on Twitter at Cardboard underscore Kid. For video reviews, check out my YouTube channel, The Cardboard Kid. Please stay safe. Happy gaming!
everybody, this is Chris Morris from Mozart Games, and I am back this week for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. You can find me on Twitter as SpiderMo, that is Spider with a Y, if you like what you hear and want to give me a follow on there. Now this week, I want to talk about a game that I just acquired and was able to get to the table, Wonderland's War by designers Ian Moss and Tim and Ben Eisner, and it's published by Skybound Games. There was a Kickstarter for this game a couple of years ago with a huge deluxe edition with tons of minis and several upgraded components. But I have the real the retail edition with standees instead, and that's the version that I'm going to discuss here. First of all, the theme for this game is absolutely incredible. Two to five players take on the role of a character from the Alice in Wonderland story, choosing from the Cheshire Cat, Mad Hatter, Red Queen, the Jabberwock, or Alice herself, and they are trying to reshape Wonderland in their own style. Each character has a very unique feel with abilities that players can unlock throughout the game. Wonderland's War is an area control style game with a bag building mechanic that anybody who's familiar with Quacks of Quinlanburg will instantly recognize. Now, I really enjoyed Quacks, but, spoiler alert, this game completely replaces that one for me. This is much heavier than Quacks, so anyone who's looking for more of an experience will probably enjoy this game. Wonderland takes place over three rounds, and each round has two phases. There's the tea party phase, and then the battle phase. During the tea party, players will be drafting cards that allow them to build their bags with new tokens that each have unique abilities when drawn. There's also Wonderlandians that you can acquire that will assist you in the battle ahead, and will also allow and the cards will also allow players to place supporters in one of the five areas that will be contested in the following phase. And finally, there are quest cards that give you objectives that you are trying to accomplish during the battles, thus guiding your decisions. Players will move their character around the tea table, gathering cards, but if they ever lap the table, they must roll a shard die that gives them uh, some corrupting shards that whoever has the most at the end of the phase will gain additional madness chips to their bag, thus weakening their future draws and making it easier to bust. Think of these madness chips as the cherry bombs from Quacks. There are ways to reduce your shards, but the more powerful cards that you draft will also force you to roll that die, gaining more in the process. So there's a bit of a balancing act when you're choosing which cards to draft. Once each player has drafted four cards and added their tokens to the bag, they will then move to the battle phase, where each of the five areas on the board are fought over by anyone who has either a supporter, a Wonderlandian that they have previously acquired, or their main character in. When placing these, you don't necessarily want to be in every area, but instead want to focus on a few at a time. Your character can be upgraded during the battle to increase your power when they're placed, but your supporters don't actually provide power on their own. They're basically just there to soak up any madness tokens that get drawn out, because each time that you draw one from your bag, you need to remove one of your units who is at the battle. If you ever run out of units at the battle, you bust and are no longer involved in that fight. However, each other token that you draw will provide you with power and often a special ability that will affect your future draw. 
Much like in Quacks, players can bow out at any point, and whoever ends up having the most power at the end of that battle wins the area and will gain some victory points, and they'll also get to place a castle in that area, providing them some power in future battles, as well as some endgame scoring. Each of the five areas will be contested each round, and any players who are not involved in a particular battle can place a wager beforehand, choosing who they think will win, and if they choose correctly, they'll gain a small bonus where they get to add a new unit to their bag. But if they lose the wager, they gain a shard that may hurt them in the next round. With this, even players who are not actively fighting in a battle are still involved and thus engaged, which is a really great part of the game. There's also some ways that players can call tokens from their bags after a battle with forge tokens or spots on the power track with a forge icon. For each of these that you have, you can take one token that you drew in the battle and place it on an upgrade area of your character board, unlocking some bonuses like additional supporters, new character abilities, or allowing your castles to be worth more victory points at the end of the game. If you reach the end of any of the four tracks, you get to add one of your special tokens to your bag, increasing your power in future battles and potentially getting more bonuses. Each character also has four special powers that they can unlock throughout the game. Two that are ongoing abilities, and two that revolve around when you, when you draw your special token. Each one is powerful and gives a unique flavor to every character. Alice can put tokens that are used back into her bag for a future battle. The Jabberwock increases the power of tokens that he draws, and the Red Queen can reduce supporters that both her and her opponents have for some additional benefits. Each one feels very different, and you'll often make some tough decisions as to which power to unlock at any given time. After three rounds, players will add up all of the victory points that they've gained throughout the game, along with however many castles that they've placed, any quests that they've completed, and they'll also lose some points for each shard that they have at the end of the game. And whoever has the most points will win the game, and according to the rules, be allowed to reshape Wonderland in their image. Now, Wonderland's War is visually one of the coolest games that I have played in a long time. Artist Manny Tremblay took the insane imagery of Wonderland and put his own spin on it. The standees are amazing, and I am more than happy to have them instead of a pile of miniatures that I'd have to take the time to paint to get close to the same kind of look. The player boards and the main board are incredibly detailed, and every Wonderlandian that you can gain throughout the game is beautifully done as well. Top notch all around. The gameplay is awesome as well, taking the basics of a game like Quacks and ramping it up to 11. It's a much meatier game with a lot going on, and it will take longer to play, with a four-player game being around two hours but it is two very engaging hours with very little downtime for anyone. The rulebook looks intimidating as it's 24 pages long and they are huge pages at that, but it is filled with tons of examples, an FAQ section, and a lot of gorgeous artwork throughout. I have to say, this is probably the single best board game experience that I have played in the last couple years. It was an impulse buy and my friend Tom McKee totally sold me on picking it up, and I do not regret that buy one bit. If you enjoy Quacks but are looking for a little bit more and like some confrontation in your games, Wonderland's War could be a fantastic addition to your collection. 
My only issue is that the box is very tough to pack everything into properly, and set up and tear down can be a bit of a chore with all of the components. But that's a small price to pay for the experience that's contained within. Once again, I am Chris Morris from Mozart Games, and thank you for listening to my thoughts on Wonderland's War from Skybound Games. May all your dice rolls be critical successes. Good day. My name is Alex from MeepleInTheMoose.com, and I'm here to tell you what I played this week for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. This week, I moved from the lower unit in my house to the upper unit, which did not leave me much time for games. Luckily, the one game I did play was interesting, and I can't wait to explore it further. The only game I played this week was Maglev Metro by designer Ted Allspock and published by Bezier Games. In Maglev Metro, players pick up and deliver robots to improve their infrastructure, which allows each of their actions to be stronger, and pick up and deliver commuters to earn victory points. What sets Maglev Metro apart from other train games is the tracks are printed on clear acrylic tiles, which allows players to place their lines on the same tiles. Players can only use lines of their color, meaning you can't, while you can't piggyback off someone else's hard work, your opponents can't explicitly block you from getting to a location. Our first game of Maglev Metro was on the Manhattan map, which features the hub. The hub breaks a pretty major rule. You can have as many entrances and exits as you want coming in and out of the hub. Usually, every other location, you can only have one way to enter and one way to exit. The hub allows your players to pivot quickly and dash out to lucrative locations easily without taking the turns necessary to rebuild their line or turn the whole train around. I found Maglev Metro to be a fascinating experience. At first, I was worried. Three of the players did the exact same thing during their first four turns of the game before really diverging. Once our paths split, the game got exciting. The robots in Maglev Metro don't give you any points at the end of the game, but they do make your train run better and are necessary for unlocking the ability to pick up commuters, which do give you points. I enjoyed the constrictions the game placed on us. It seemed to tap into our inclination to be as efficient as possible. We didn't want to waste a turn turning around, and we raced for every robot, even though we all had robots languishing on our boards on actions that we just weren't taking. In the end, I found the hub to be a good tool to introduce us to Maglev Metro. It would be... It would have been frustrating playing the Berlin map first and making critical mistakes right out of the gate, bringing our progress to a screeching halt. Going forward, however, the hub that lets you change direction and embraces short trips seems to be at odds to the spirit of the game. One friend kept mentioning how thematically a maglev should be traveling at 400 kilometers per hour and wouldn't be making short trips. Maglev Metro also ran a Kickstarter I think it just ended for some expansion maps that I am sorely tempted by. Each one looks to add a new mechanic that would greatly enhance the variability of Megalev Metro. Until it gets a few plays and proves that it requires that variability, I'll be holding off on buying anything further for Megalev Metro. And that's all I played this week. If you want to read more of my thoughts on board games, check out my reviews over at MeepleInTheMoose.com or follow me on Twitter at MooseMeeple. Have a happy Wednesday. Yeah.
Hello, everybody. It's Rob and Anna Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back again recording for the What You've Been Playing Wednesdays podcast. This week, we have two games to talk about. What game are we going to talk about first, Anna Marie? The first game we're going to talk about is Pictures, a game by Daniela and Christian Store, and published by Rio Grande Games and PD Games. Yes. Pictures. This is a game for three to five players, um, and it is an abstract um yeah abstract strange game so (laughs) what we're doing here is there are photo realistic pictures in a deck here and you're going to lay out uh 16 of them in a four by four grid and they could be anything they could be a landscape they could be a dock they could be food they could be scissors and twine they could be a stop sign it could be animals animals boats you name it, they're on these cards. And what's going to happen is these are going to get laid out in that 4x4 four four grid, and then they're going to get assigned coordinates, uh, A, B, C, D down one side, and 1, 2, 3, 4 on the other. Um, and what's going to happen is we're going to pull a coordinate out of a bag, and it's going to say, say, uh, C3 on mine and A2 for you. But we're going to keep those secret from each other. And we're going to get handed a bag uh, full of random things, And I mean random, like one bag has some sticks and some stones, some has some building blocks, some has some colored cubes, some has uh, some shoelaces, and another has a small deck of cards with various symbols. It's like a black outline of images drawn, kind of. And what the object is, is for me, I know that my card that I'm looking at is coordinate C3, and for mine right now, it's it's kind of a shipyard, is what that's looking like. Yeah, on the ice. And... um, Whatever bag is given to me, say these sticks and stones, I have to arrange them on the table to best represent the card that I have been assigned because I'm trying to get you to guess it. Exactly. And same vice versa for me. So if you were doing, uh, say, A3, you would have the scissors and twine picture and say you had uh, the, the, the colored blocks, you would have to <laughs> use those in a... In a <laughs> And a little three by three grid. grid of little colored blocks to best represent that photo, hopefully getting me to guess it. And this is incredibly difficult to do. Yeah. Um, I got lucky on a few of these from time to time, but man, some of these are difficult to do. You don't know how difficult it is to uh, to do like a sunset with building blocks yeah. <laughs> that are just brown. One is like. A circle, one is a triangle, one is a square, one is a rectangle, one is a a half moon. Yeah. And like you have to build that picture out of building blocks and try to get the person to guess it. And if there's 16 options for them to pick from, it's not like there's four. Right. Right? Yeah. And like, man, is it difficult? And it's so interesting because uh, you go through this doing the same activity over and over again and you get points for every time somebody guesses your thing. Yeah, so you go through like five rounds because yeah. there are five different objects that you can build Yeah, you with. go through each, you go through a round trying out each of the different uh, ways to create the picture. Right. Yeah, and so everyone gets a turn with everything, building blocks and sticks and stones. Yeah, and it's nice because then you know it's easy to know when the game ends because it's once you've used everything. Yeah. And it's... Uh, Everybody has the same difficulty level because everybody has to use the same yeah. things just for different images. And it's a, it's nice because it's not punishing. Um, the point is you want other people to guess what you've got mm-hmm. because you get points for every person that guesses yours correctly. And you get a point for every one that you guess correctly of the other people. Right. So 
you just want to get all the points and that's just going to be by guessing correctly so you don't want to lead people astray you don't want to try to make it well i want some people to get it but not not all people to get it you want everyone to know what you're doing yeah and it's just super interesting it really fires up different parts of the brain that you uh don't generally use because i mean on one of the pictures i had a bee landing on a uh kind of a little flower. flower yeah and um I had shoelaces to do that with, a long one and a short one. So I was able to kind of tie a knot out of the one shoelace with one of the laces kind of sticking out the end. It kind of looked like a stinger, and I kind of tried to make loops for its wings. And then I kind of clumped up the other one and kind of had it looking at it and just whatever. And, like, that's what you have to do, and you have to try to get people to guess it. It's like it's not easy. It's so interesting. It's much more interesting than I anticipated. I'd seen this game on the shelf for the last couple of years, and... um, and then you picked it up uh, a few months back there and yeah, we've played through it and it's, yeah, it just surprised me. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very interesting. It really makes you work to, to, uh, you know, get everyone to figure out your yeah. picture. And it's interesting because there are two of each coordinate in the bag that you're pulling oh, yeah, from. And that's happened. Yeah. yeah. It happens more than you would think. Where you both pull the same yeah, coordinate. We both pull B2 of... and yeah, you're making it out of building blocks and I'm making it out of shoelaces. Yeah. And we're like, uh, neither of these look like anything. And yeah. Like, oh, and so, so interesting. You're like, oh, that looks kind of like the one I'm doing. Is it? Did he pull the same number? Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's super cool. It's, it's, uh, I recommend it. It's a neat one. It's a really great family game. We haven't played this with the kids yet but i think we need to yeah Um, i'd be very curious to see what they could come up with with some of these things so the one thing that i would change on this game is in the rules it says that you've got the four by four grid and you play with that same grid all the way through without switching anything yeah i don't like that but when i i've played it like that and you end up getting the same cards with the same things and i didn't like that so we just ended up taking out as we um, after each round we would take out the cards that we used and replenish it with there's a huge stack of cards yeah yeah but so, I, I like this game. It's a ton of fun. Yeah, it's really fun. That's pictures from Rio Grande games. And um, we have one more game to mention, and we're not going to go into detail because we reviewed this game on our last episode of the Meeple Dungeon podcast. It actually went out today, so that's uh, yesterday by the time you guys are listening to this. And that's Merchants of the Dark Road, yeah. uh, designed by Brian Suri and uh, published by Elf Creek Games. Yeah. So we've played several games of... Uh, Merchants of the Dark Road over the last week and yeah you can find out all about it yeah, I know on we episode s- 33 of the Meeple Dungeon Podcast yeah so Merchants of the Dark Road it's it's pretty cool check very, it out very very interesting game um, yeah uh, if you like pick up and deliver you definitely want to check this out right so we gotta run and we will see you next week cheers see ya <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop segment of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, working with you to make your game nights better. If you've got a gaming or game night situation you could use some help with, send an email off to questions at tabletopbellhop.com, visit our webpage and click on Ask the Bellhop, or hit me up on social media where I can be found everywhere as Tabletop Bellhop One Word. Now, of course, the question I'm answering today is what you've been playing this past week as part of what you've been playing Wednesday. Now, I managed to get in quite a bit of in-person gaming this past week, starting with game nine of Charterstone. 
This was a very fun game, and all I will say for those who have played through the game before is we all managed to keep the king happy, and I totally called the twist at the end. I just wasn't quite expecting it this early. I thought it was going to be game 11 or 12, maybe, by the time that happened. Now we've got three games left to finish off our personal Charterstone campaign, and I can't wait to wrap it up. In a good way, not like I wish it was done. Now that we're coming to the end of that campaign, we've been talking about what to do next. Now, with this particular game group that gets together on Fridays, we like to have one campaign legacy or scenario-based game going at a time, and then we often replace it with a new one. And I think what we're going to do is replace Charterstone with an actual role-playing game, like a pen-and-paper role-playing game with a GM and characters, uh, specifically diving into the One Ring 2nd Edition with the new starter set. Now, that starter set I'm going to be reviewing on tonight's live recording of the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, and I encourage you to join us live on Twitch at 9 p.m. Eastern to learn more about the latest Middle-Earth-based role-playing game and its new beginner box. Now, after Charterstone, we played a four-player game of Ex Libris. Now, this was only my second time playing Ex Libris ever and our first game playing with four players. Right away, I have to say that the game is much better with four than two. Not that it was bad with two, just more enjoyable with four. I still really love the worker placement system in this one. And so far, we're all really loving this fantasy library building card game. Up next, we introduce Tori and Kat to The Downfall of Pompeii, which went over really well. They noted that they think it would be a great cabin game and a game to play with Tori's mom, who likes lighter but not mass market level games. Like last week, I do want to point out this is a great game at three or four players, best at four, but should probably be avoided if there were only two of you. Now, Saturday night, Dan and I got a couple games off our pile of shame, which has been shrinking at a nice solid rate lately, which I really dig. Now, the first Pile of Shame game we played was Discover Lands Unknown. This is that procedurally generated board game from Fantasy Flight that came out around the same time as Keyforge, where every copy of the board game is supposedly unique. Now, our particular set, and I guess this is one of the things that differentiates them, included the valley and bayou terrain types. Now, we've only played the first scenario set in the valley so far, and really enjoyed it uh, way more than I expected to based on some of the negative reviews out there. Now, this is a game where you wake up in the middle of the wilderness in one particular train type with no memory of where you are or how you got there. It's a game about survival where you're going to need to find food and water as well as try to figure out what's going on and how to escape the, uh, the area you're in. Now, our first game was interesting and nice and tense, and we actually loved exploring the valley and the way the mechanics worked for pulling cards from a deck and possibly pulling more cards and being able to invent things and build things and discover sites on the map and battling wild animals and more. It was a way better experience than I was actually expecting. Now, what I'm curious about is how varied this game is. Like, there was a twist ending here, and does every scenario one and every box end the same way with that same twist? Or was that unique to our copy? Or was what we got one of, you know, four or five possible different endings for Scenario 1? I'm actually really curious about this. So if anyone has played through Scenario 1 of Discover Lands Unknown, hit me up on social media, maybe by DM so we don't spoil anything. And let me know how your game ended. I want to compare notes to see just how unique it is. Because I will admit I did not expect the twist. Now Deanne and I are both looking forward to Scenario 2 and exploring the bayou. Now, I do have a serious concern about this game, that it's going to be much less interesting after Game 2. 
After the first two scenarios, you start to reuse the map tiles, and you're reusing the decks that you've used for the first couple games. And you're already going to know a lot of what's there, what creatures you're going to find, what the different numbered sites on the map tiles mean, and I'm worried it's going to make it just less fun. But we're not there yet. I can't make a call until we actually get there, so we'll see when we get to games three and four and so on. Now, the other game Deanna and I got off our pile of shame was Smell... Smell... I, always, I have such a hard time saying the name of this game. Spell Smashers. I don't know why. I want to say Smell Spashers or something. Spell Smashers from Renegade Games. Now, this is a mashup of card-driven spelling game and dungeon crawl. Um, we've mentioned this one on our podcast before as an honorable mention for uh, learning games, educational games, and spelling games, but I never actually got to play it until now. Now, this is a game where you have a hand of seven letters, and you're going to spell words, and what letters you use, each letter is going to do a certain amount of damage and type of damage to the monsters. And then if you defeat a monster, you get to keep its tile, which gives you a permanent letter you can use going forward. Now, of course, there's a lot more going on. You can also go shopping between encounters. Uh, you can take wounds, and when you do, you get cards with multiple letters on them that are hard to use that kind of clog up your hand, but then let you spell some pretty big words sometimes. You, go, you can go shopping for gear. You can buy potions to make wild card letters. There's even side quests you can complete. Both of us, Deanna and I, were really impressed by this one, and I am shocked because I actually won a word-based game versus Deanna who tends to trump me in these kinds of games. So I think my uh, view of the game is a little better because I happened to win the first time, but I did really enjoy it. I am really looking forward to trying this one with more players and just playing it more in general. I'm hoping to bring it out on Friday to try it with Tori and Kat. Now, next up was Sunday game night at my mother-in-law's, where we first played a five-player game of Gorinto. And I love Gorinto. I really love Gorinto. This is my favorite abstract game of all time. Now, this was our first time playing with both the five-player expansion and the dragon tiles at once. Now, we also used the seasonal scoring variant where you rotate what scores every round. And I got to say, all five of us playing really loved it, which included um, everyone from uh, the kids to their grandmother all at the same table. Now, this particular combination, I got to say, works really well. If you are going to play with like play with five players, throw in the dragons and use this rotation system for scoring, I think this is a great way to play as long as everyone there already knows how to play, which we all did. Now, my final game for this week was a five-player round of the Quacks of Quedlinburg with the Herb Witches expansion. Now, this is only my second time playing with the expansion, and for the most part, I love it. I love the witches and their one-time use abilities. I love the local weed ingredient and the new uses for the original ingredients. What I don't love so far are these six pumpkins. The second round of this game, we drew a fortune card that let players discard two rubies to take any one ingredient. Now, of course, the players that could afford this took six pumpkins, and from that round on, there was no catching them for the rest of the game. We had a runaway leader problem so bad that the last round of the game, Deanna got to use 46 rat tails. Four six. She had been lapped on the score track twice at this point. Now, up until this game on Sunday, I would have told you this expansion's perfect, but I think there could be some combos of ingredients and fortune teller cards that are quite broken. Now, I will say the odds of them coming up at all and then at the right time, like the beginning of the game and, and like the perfect storm we had is probably going to be extremely rare. But I have to say that last game was not as much fun as any other game of Quacks I've ever played with everyone that far behind the leaders. 
Now, the other thing that came to me as came to as a surprise to me was how much longer the game is with five players. Like I, this is my first time playing with the five player ability that's added with Herb Witches. And I was surprised because the game was significantly longer. I would have thought that Quacks, where everyone's playing simultaneously, pulling from the bags at the same time and scoring basically at the same time would be about the same length, depend, no matter how many players you had. But I guess it's the time between turns and getting stuff set up and cleaning up your bag, as well as trying to decide what to buy. That shopping round really does take a lot of time per player, if they, especially if they're they're having some AP problems. That just that little bit more time each round for that player shopping really adds up to a longer game than expected. So watch out for that. So for all overall, like I'm not trying to hate on Herb Witches here. I actually think it's a must-have expansion, and most of it is fantastic. Just keep your eye open for some wonky interactions and maybe house rule as needed. Maybe reshuffle in that fortune card if it happens to come up so it shows up later in the game. Also, realize with five players, it is going to take longer than with four, even though everyone plays at the same time. So there you have what I've been playing this past week. I gotta say, that was a solid week of solid games. No real disappointments there, though I could have had a better time in Quacks. Now before I go, reminder, visit TabletopBellhop.com. Join us tonight and every Wednesday night on Twitch at 9 p.m. Eastern for our live podcast recording. And look for us on your podcatcher of choice or YouTube if you can't join us live. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I am Mo Tuzano. Good day and game on. Hey everybody, it's Norm from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And it's time to find out what the Bridge City Board Gamers community has been playing. So let's go to the Facebook page and let's check out the thread. Jason, we played role player adventures with Ash and the Castles of Burgundy. Role player adventures. I want to get into some of that maybe later because it's it's a hot it's hyped up game right now and uh it's yeah based off the role player game and then the expansions and it's just so much goodness and castles of burgundy classic one of my top 10 games absolutely stefan feld love it hans of course we're gonna start off with terraforming mars and that's just like the palate cleanser <laughs> uh istanbul the dice game i've played it it's fun yeah absolutely uh, Second Chance and Cafe. I have not played either of those. I'll have to go check those out. Right on. Uh, Lane, Monopoly Disney Princess Edition. And the homebrew variant created by my six-year-old that could be compared to Arkham Horror Second Edition. <laughs> That's awesome. I want more of that. That's for sure. <laughs> I want to see some future designs. Maybe they can, maybe your six-year-old can do something with Yahtzee. Uh, Blood Rage, Cascadia. Love Cascadia. Uh, Cargo Noir. I've heard lots about it. Not, uh, not played it. Princess Bride. I got the whole movie going on in my head right now. Um, inconceivable. Um, uh, Escape. Marvel United. Wasp's. Uh, Wasp, Squirrel Girl, Cap, Black Widow versus Kang, uh, and uh, a lot of other Kangs, and Goblin. So, wow, Lane, you had a very, very busy week. Well done. Louie, uh, let's see. Oh, there's a good list here. Uh, Furnace, 
God, I've got yet to get into some furnace. I need, I need to check that out. Looks fun. Uh, Meeple Dungeon. Yeah, they, uh, I saw that when they po- started posting it on Twitter. Uh, Cascadia, King of Tokyo. Yay. Speaking of Yahtzee mechanism. Killer Bunnies. Quirkle, just one. Oh, one of the, just one is by far top three party game for me. Absolutely. Schmear, So Clover. And I hear So Clover is another very, 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 very good party game. Awkward Guests. Uh, that's Roxley Games. I've seen it, not played it. Cascadia, once again, Unmatched and Blood, Blood Rage. Uh, yeah, Eric Lang. That's the first in the trilogy. I've not played the other two, but I have played Blood Rage. I think you have to say it like that. Eli really got into Dead Reckoning. So pretty. Uh, so pretty much just that and one game of Sorcerer City. Oh, cool. Two titles I've not played, but uh, have great interest in trying them out. Garth picked up Welcome to the Moon this week. I've been having fun learning this game while on Easter vacation. Also had a chance to get back into High Frontier for All and play a few silly rounds of Saboteur. Nice. Uh, Welcome to the Moon, Flippin' Right. Uh, Yeah, yeah, very cool game. Very cool game. And uh, the other titles, I... uh, High Frontier for All. Uh, I I was gonna say High Frontier, but that uh, Sierra Grande. But I don't think that's I don't think that's it. Uh, Brian, lots of dice thrown with my daughter. She loves it. And my weekly Gloomhaven. That's a fantastic balance. Yay! Well done. So that's what the Bridge City Board Gamers community has been playing. And uh, myself, what you been playing Wednesday, LePage? Well, I have been playing. Lots of Now or Never, designed by Ryan Lockett and uh, artist Ryan Lockett. I mean, he's the renaissance man of, of board gaming because he's also the publisher of Red Raven Games. And uh, this is the, uh, the third in the series, the uh, Arzium series, I believe, is the, is the world building that he does. And fantastic world building, too. Uh, third in that series, Above and Below is the first one. Uh, Near and Far is the second. And this game is the third. Uh, all three of them, what they have in common is they are storytelling games or choose-your-own-adventure style games. Uh, now or Never, specifically, I'll, t- I'll paint, you know, paint the picture of this one. Um, it is a, uh, there's two modes. There's a standard mode and there's the storybook mode. Uh, I've played a lot of the standard mode. I'm going to play some story uh, storybook mode games uh, because it's going to be um, on the upcoming uh, review of Cardboard Conjecture uh, dropping uh, this Saturday. And uh, so I've played a lot of the standard play and it's fantastic. I'm having so much fun. The only the only thing I would say that that uh, is a downside for me is there there's a lot of stuff to incidentally remember when you start developing the asymmetry of your of your uh, character and the abilities and and discounts here and discounts there and and whatever weapons you have bonuses and minuses and health bumps and uh, it, sometimes it gets to the point where you can miss a couple things and it could be I mean it could turn the game into a, a wrong direction uh, case in point I remember having a, uh, a a gear item a helm where if I rolled a four, that I would regain a hit point. 
And uh, when I, I did, uh, if you want to check it out, I did a playthrough, uh, uh, a new series that uh, is on the YouTube channel called Let's Play. And uh, so we, I did Let's Play Now or Never. And when I was watching it, uh, I was in a battle and I rolled a four and I was losing hit points and they were losing hit points, but I was forgetting to give myself that back, that bonus one. And it got to the point where it came down to a roll. It didn't have to come down to a roll because I had rolled two fours previous to that, which would have added a couple more hit points. And, uh, but there was so much drama and I made that roll. So it made, it made for some good video podcasting, but that would, that would be the, critique I would have about that. Now, it's not a negative one. I mean, it could be just me not remembering. It could be a user error. <laughs> I'm going to put more more lean into that one. But uh, yeah, this one is so much fun. It reminds me a lot of Islebound, one of his, of his early, earlier uh, releases in regards to the resource exchange building. Um, and th- now, in this one, you're preparing, now I didn't even explain what the game's about, but the scenario is there's a meteorite that landed, some nasties came out of this meteorite, scared the people of the area away. Generations later, the nasties have kind of, you know, slowed down or reduced themselves, but they're still there, and you are trying to get these people to come back uh, and restart that civilization because it's now or never that this civilization starts back up, and you are building your community and uh, it's very what's really cool in this sense probably going to be one of my unique mechanisms is the way that you purchase your buildings from your building tableau market putting them into your uh, player board display is very very clever and uh, so yeah that's I've been playing now or never I also want to quickly talk about uh, a game that I purchased Um, now my wife I, I my wife her hobby is reading books and she's a, she reads lots like she's she's really good at her hobby um so i have to and she she'll play board games with me but she's the type of uh board game player where don't she doesn't like volume of games show her a few games and and she wants to be you know get very good at them so this whole idea of replayability for me to keep me interested too because i mean once i play a game and i'm like okay you know, been there, done that. Uh, that's a bad headspace for me to be when my wife wants to play it a lot. So that's a, this is a long introduction to talk about Canvas. <laughs> Canvas, one to five players, solo mode, designed by Jeff Chin and Andrew uh, Nerger, or Nergy, I don't know, um, published by Road to Infamy Games, uh, R2i Games. And uh, this is, now again, she's huge into art. Uh, we just finished binge- binging uh, on, I think it was Amazon Prime, Sky Arts, Landscape Artist of the Year, and uh, a BBC production. And we, we consumed um, media in regards to art. So right away I thought, hey, our brains are there. So Canvas is a pretty straightforward, pretty simple game where you're, you're basically, uh, you're a painter competing in an art competition and there's a tableau. Now, it's the cards. It's, it's these uh, acetate see-through cards. Um, I mean, the first place, I, Mystic Veil is the first place I saw uh, anybody using that kind of idea where you sleeve. And you create a three-layer system of a painting. And on the bottom is where your resources or your uh, dynamic uh, connecting elements 
will contribute to the rules of that game. So in, in one game, it might say, if you can produce a painting that has uh, these two certain elements in it, you will get a, you will get a ribbon. If you could produce a, a painting that has a lot of contrast in it, and, and it'll show you, you know, the, the, the target rules that you're trying to get when you're building these paintings. And uh, the way that you can layer them where, you, you know, uh, you, can, you can select uh, one, let's say in the blue paint column, you have two choices. Well, if you put one above the other, then you've covered that one. And there's so, my brain was just about breaking um, trying to dimensionally interpret the information that I had when I would construct my paintings. And uh, it is one of those uh, cleverly simple games where you have two choices. You either pick an acetate card or you build a painting. And once you get the five acetate cards, you must build a painting. And the game ends when you uh, finish three, or the game ends for you when you finish three paintings. And then you have to wait till everybody else finishes. Then you go through uh, the same scoring, but in but in the in the final round of scoring, you get points um, dependent upon the amount of ribbons you have. So let's say in the blue category, uh, you might have. Uh, for one ribbon, you get uh, two points. For two, uh, two ribbons, you get six points. For three ribbons, you get 12 points. And uh, you go through those four, uh, four categories, yes. And uh, once you evaluate that, uh, whoever has the most points wins the game. It is, and the fact that there's a, a big deck of cards in regards to the different rules that you can have for each game or the different uh, um, judges' targets, uh, and the acetate cards. There is so much dynamic variability in this game that I think I found one. And Mel likes it. Yay! So uh, that is huge kudos. Huge kudos to the designers. And, um, and of course, I mean, the first thing that compels you is the, the box cover is so gorgeous. Well done. Um, and I've got to say, the, the artist is uh, Luan uh, Hun. I apologize if I mispronounce your name. Um, but uh, yes, this is such a beautiful, beautifully put together game that I encourage anybody to, to give this a try. And uh, as far as, I, I talk about cognitive load a lot. And, and uh, you know, cognitive load to me, to, to explain to you is um, a term that was used in instructional design. If you have too much to think about, then you can't understand or you can't immerse yourself in it. And there, the simple rule set of pick an acetate or make a painting is it has a reduced cognitive load, but the incredible amount of cognitive load that comes in is your interpretation and manipulation of all these elements to create. Man, I get stressed out when I'm and when I'm at five cards and I'm forced, I'm forced to make a painting. And I I don't have AP, not usually. I'm like, step on the gas and, and, and you know, steer the car. This one, oh man, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm in a cul-de-sac. I don't, there's times where I, it's like, okay, make a painting. I don't know where to start. Make a painting. I don't know where, right? It's so much fun. My, the fact that something um, as straightforward as that can make my brain uh, like have a disc skip. I'm talking, I could even say record skip, but nobody would know what I'm talking about. Maybe two people, Chris 
and you know maybe mo <laughs> but a disk skip is okay forget it uh stream buffering yeah here we go there's a terminology my brain goes into bad buffer mode when it comes to making a painting and 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 don't get me wrong i enjoy that when something can make my brain hiccup i enjoy that because now i'm paying attention so yes i can't wait to play this more um and uh yeah, uh, yeah i'm pretty sure i'm gonna have a review with this one because just the 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 depth the potential is great so i think i've spoken enough i think i've hyped this one quite enough so yes that was canvas um and um we're at that point where i have to i outright have to say thank you so much for listening and uh always huge thank you to the other content creators here who uh contribute to such a wonderful episode every week it is so appreciated and you are appreciated and that being said keep your stick on the ice and take care out there eh